Well, ever since God saved me in 1979, I have found it ironic that one of the most pagan songs ever written became the greatest hit and the signature song of Frank Sinatra's long career, namely, I did it my way. Now, what does that say about him? But more importantly, what does it say about people in general? Probably that we all have a tendency to be self-absorbed and self-possessed. And think about Frank Sinatra's life and all the things that he struggled with. And also... Not just him, but we know that the majority of people live lives of quiet desperation. You know, we try it our way, and it doesn't work. Now, I had a friend of mine about 40 years ago, and and his name was Stu. And he was known for a few signature sayings, but... You know, sometimes, and I would be there, you know, on a break or lunch hour, people would come up to him and and overconfident, a bit overconfident, and they would say, well, I I tried this and I tried that, you know, and it would be things that are not necessarily the best ways to get yourself out of a situation, and, and I can't do it as cynically as he did because he was the master of cynicism. But he would say, how's that working for you? You know, as if to say, try another thing, right? It's not always what you want to do. You see, refusing to live life God's way by gratefully receiving his grace in his son, that's the main point of the parable of Jesus that we are considering today. You see, first, those who were invited to a long-planned and extravagant wedding feast through a special call of the father of the groom, who is also the king of the entire land, totally disregarded this call. They had better things to do. They didn't want to come. Some people went their own way, and other people, other people murdered his servants. And then nextly, when strangers and casual passers-by finally filled the hall, one guest refused the gracious offer of proper wedding clothes. Presumably, he thought his own clothes were good enough and that his own way was right. Well, when the host king questioned him, he was speechless, speechless. And then the king had him bound and thrown and taken out into outer darkness. Why? Well, this king in the parable is actually God. And this particular guests would not accept 
God's invitation in his way, in God's way. Instead, he insisted on his own. So let us now consider Jesus' parable and also the portion of the psalm about the anointed or messianic king. So first, the parable. There's two halves to it, two parts, two acts, so to speak. Okay, in the first part, the kingdom of heaven is like a human king. It literally says anthropos uh, and then king. I forgot the Greek word, doesn't matter. But a human king who planned wedding celebrations for his son, but those called twice rejected and ultimately killed his servants. Okay, the first section of this act, Jesus is speaking a kingdom of heaven parable about a human king having planned these wedding celebrations for his son and sent his servants out finally to call them to come And they just were not coming. So let's look at the highlights of the details as Jesus tells this. He starts right out and says, the kingdom of heaven is like a human king who made a marriage celebration or marriage celebrations. It's actually plural for his son. And I thought about this. And what we have here is a multitude of that which is good and beautiful. Now, The word for make or made here is poeo, which is the basis of the English word poetry. And I think this is very important because it carries the connotation of quality artistic work, not just manufacturing, but something that is good and artistic. So the wedding that uh, is planned for this son, the king's plans. It's so big that he made plans for multiple good and beautiful feasts. And then we're told he sent out his servants to call those who had been called and they were not coming, not coming. So this invitation was good all the way up until the wedding day itself. It had been long in the planning. They had been sent out. They were still in force. They were still valid all the way up to the day. And now the feast is ready. However, those who had been called continued to refuse to attend. So he sent them out and probably gave them several hours, maybe a day even, to to plan to be there. And they just on and on and on refused. They had no desire to come. Now, the second um, stage of this first act, having planned the wedding celebrations for his son, he again sent his servants to those called to come, saying, behold, wake up. Pay attention, I have prepared the dinner. But then they ended up murdering these servants, the second batch. So Jesus continues his parable story. Again, he sent out other servants saying, you all must go to those having been called. Behold, behold, I have made thorough preparations. Come to the celebrations. 
So now he has these servants go out with a double command to attend. It's even stronger. And he speaks of the prepared meats that he has made and everything, everything that's needed for a great feast. Well, we're told having disregarded the second call, some went each to his own affairs and the rest having taken hold of the servants were insolently spiteful and then slew them. They murdered them. So we have here, first of all, self-interest. You see both the farmer in the fields around the city or village and the merchants who lived and traded in there, they chose to continue working for personal gain over attending what was in their minds, the extravagant and drawn-out celebrations of the ruling elite. It was their way to do their thing at their time, so that's what they're doing. But then we also find the others were spiteful, insolent murderers. The remainder of those who were called showed their depravity by proud violence. That's a more detailed definition of the word that Jesus used here, ultimately leading to murder. So the first act, the first part of the parable ends with the king becoming furious and he sent his soldiers to destroy them. Literally, we're told the king was made furious. Now, think about that. It was the actions of those who had been called. Here's a king who is gracious, but he's also got a sense of righteousness. And he had called these people for a long time out of his generosity to enjoy these feasts. And their behavior, their actions, what they did to to disregard, disrespect, disrupt, and end up killing his servants brought about now fury in him. And having sent forth his soldiers, he destroyed those murderers and their city they burned down. So now we've got destruction and death along with fire, okay? He caused these proud murderers to be destroyed and his soldiers burned everything, everything. So think about this. He treated them like foreign enemies, even though they were his subjects that he wanted to bless. And it's because of how they responded to his gracious call. They totally, totally rejected it. Okay, second part, act two, the king sends more servants out every road from the city and the celebrations are filled with guests. But there was one there who chose his own garments and he's taken to outer darkness and he's not chosen. So again, just like the first half, the first act, there's three sections. It starts out with this king sending a third group of servants out all of the roads entering the city, and they must call whoever they find to these celebrations. 
And finally, it's filled with guests. So Jesus continues, and here's some of the details. He's saying to his servants, indeed, the wedding is ready. This is the gracious king host's father. But those who have been called were not worthy. Therefore, you must all go out each road, leaving the city. And as many as you all may find, you all must call them to these marriage celebrations. So we get this strong phrase, it's indeed ready. Again, everything is now fully and finally prepared for these extravagant celebrations. Not worthy. However, Jesus says the first ones who were called and had these long-standing invitations, they were now not worthy. They've been killed. Their city's been burned. They're not worthy to be attending these gracious feasts that the king is giving for his son. Jesus may be here, in, in fact, I'm pretty sure of it, warning the Jews who thought that as God's chosen people, they could and should reject his call to follow him as the king of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying these Jews who refused their Messiah, who was sent by God, they are unworthy of the kingdom blessings. Now, Jesus uses a unique word in the King James and most of the translations. There's two words translated by highway. The first time, it's the only time this word is used in scripture. And the best description is, you know, you think of a city, especially in those days with walls and gates. It's the portion of the the road that goes from the city through the gates and on out to the main highways and thoroughfares where people are traveling. So picture this third group just going out of the city in every direction, at least all four directions, heading out to the thoroughfares where there's hundreds of people passing by. And then he says, you must call as many. Now this, as many, was almost surely strangers Probably people even from other nations going by this capital city. Um, And this may foreshadow, I think it does. Uh, Again, there's only one purpose to a parable, but there's a lot here. The good news of the kingdom being given to the whole world, which is how Matthew closes the gospel. Make disciples of people of all nations. Well, having gone out, these servants gathered together all the people that they found, and it's interesting. In the original, Jesus said, both evil and good. And the wedding celebrations were made full of dinner guests. Well, the question here isn't so much about the evil people, but what makes a person good in light of the scripture? And I'm going to quote Psalm 14, and the longer version of it is in your bulletins this morning, but the heart of it is talking about people. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. You see, the reality is that people, 
all of us sinners by nature. We are made good by God when by his grace we turn from ourselves to trust him in humble, dependent faith. I must acknowledge my desire to live my way. I want to do it my way. And then I must pray that all I do, I will do in Christ, not my way, not my will, but his way and his will. Well, anyway, we're told the house is filled with all kinds of people. And this describes the wedding feast of the Lamb, namely Jesus and his church, which is in the third to last chapter of Scripture, made up of people of all of the nations as well as God's people, the Jews, primarily in Ephesians 2. And now we come to the second part. The place is filled. I'm sure the king is excited, but we're told the king notices a man not clothed in wedding garments, and this man being asked how it was, he became speechless, and then the king ordered him taken bound to outer darkness. So just imagine now all the buzz that's going on, all of these people, and Jesus says, but having seen finally to notice the dinner guests, the king saw there a man not having put on a wedding garment, and he's saying to this man, companion. Now, this is the very same word used only twice in the Gospels and all of Scripture about a friend, a companion. We heard it two weeks ago. How did you come here not having a garment of wedding celebration? But he was speechless. So now he's wrongly dressed. A wedding feast host always provided adequate clothing to all. And this would be especially true of a host who was a king. So this man had no excuse for disregarding his host's terms. And people, this isn't just 2,000 years ago. We have no excuse for not coming to God on his terms. We don't come to him our way. We come to him his way through his son. We must accept God's invitation on God's terms. You know, and and it just occurred to me here, this is kind of a miracle hidden in the parable because it said they brought in both evil and good, meaning there were lots of evil people there. But I presume, therefore, that most of the evil people took advantage of the gracious provision of the wedding garments. And I think that's kind of exciting. I'm not willing to say that's all that Jesus was saying, and that's what he really said, but I think maybe, huh? So this man, he is wrong, He knows it, and he remains silent. And this reminded me of a story in Luke's gospel when Jesus confronted scribes at the house of a Pharisee after he proved that it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. 
And, and all of a sudden, this is, I think, what the Holy Spirit does with conviction. We're told these opposers were speechless. They're speechless because they know they're wrong and they've been caught. And then the king says to his servants, after binding him, you all must take him to the outer darkness. And again, going back to um, two weeks before where we're learning the lesson about forgiveness and the man who had been forgiven a tremendous debt and he couldn't forgive his fellow servant. This man was now bound hand and foot. And we saw two weeks ago that it's sin that binds us and forgiveness that sets us free. But his unwillingness to live by the king's terms, his king's terms, led to a future of eternal darkness. And again, we should apply this. This is a warning that we must live God's way in faithful obedience to God. And again, on his terms, people, we must accept God's invitation on his terms. And now concluding the parable, the result is many are called, but few are chosen by the eternal God and anointed king who rules in righteousness. So Jesus has now told this parable and so that nobody will be confused or miss the point. He says, because many are being called, but few are chosen, few chosen. So we have here both a warning and an exhortation. Christ chosen. And, and I put this together from the epistles to the churches in the New Testament. Christ's chosen people have put on his character as clothing. That's in Ephesians 4. And then Colossians says, we have put off our old self of doing things our way, of doing things my way, and we have put on God's love that holds everything together. Again, the clothing we need is in Christ Jesus. We can be clothed in his righteousness when we come to God on his terms. So that's the parable. And it took me the longest time to figure out why these um, seminary professors and preachers out in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul chose Psalm 45, but it really has to do about Messiah Jesus and who it is that is giving this command. So looking at the psalm, um, David was inspired to uh, write this. Actually, it's the sons of Korah. I take that back. They wrote a lot of the ones. These were the musician Levites. Your throne, O God, your throne is eternal, and the ruling rod, that's what a scepter is, of your kingdom is uprightness. That, that's a wonderful word in scripture. And think about it, only a king who is fully upright, fully upright, is able to rule forever. Any other king would eventually fall, usually on his own faults. 
And then the heart of this is, and, and I had to really think about this and look at it because I missed it at first. But you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, remember, he's already been addressed as God and being the king. But then what do we do about these words? Therefore, God, your God. God's God. Yep. Uh, he has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So there's a lot going on here. Let's, let's look at a few things. There are two ways, again, all through scripture, in, in one of the writings of the church fathers, the didache or teaching says there are two ways. There are always two ways. People are either righteous by having confessed their sins to receive forgiveness and the righteousness by faith, or they're wicked. And then God has two responses to this. The eternally upright God loves those who are righteous by faith and hates the wicked. Now, your God has anointed you. Anointed is a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. Okay, so the first God in verse um, six here, that is the Messiah Jesus. And his God is Father God. I mean, this blew me away. Here we are some six or seven centuries before Jesus, and we're already getting uh, some hints at the Trinity, that God is two persons, uh, God the Father and God the Messiah. Okay, now, in the parable we saw, the groom was both Jesus and the future king. So Messiah Jesus, Jesus Christ, which also means anointed, He is both groom and king. So the church is the bride of Jesus, but he's also the king of his subjects. And then I want to close on the last word of this psalm describing God. Joy. People, here is our challenge, okay? Let us desire to be chosen by Messiah Jesus to share his joy at his wedding feast that will inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. Read Revelation 19. So that's the exposition of the scriptures. Let's wrap it up. The kingdom of heaven is like a human king who planned an extravagant wedding feast for his son. But those called twice refused to come, and then they ultimately murdered his servants. So he sends still more servants out from the city in every direction to call all, and the celebration hall, it's filled. But when a guest is questioned about not being properly dressed, he's silenced, taken into outer darkness because He was not chosen by the anointed king. And why not? We need to take this to heart. I think this is the main point 
this morning. Accept God's invitation on his terms. Don't be like Frank Sinatra and all those people who made the hit song number one. Don't insist on doing it my way. Let's say, thy way, thy will be done. Amen.